Last week, out of Matthew 8, we got on this boat with Jesus along with his other disciples and we went across the Sea of Galilee and we encountered the storm and we saw how Jesus was asleep. They kind of categorized him, but they learned to experience him in everyday life. They learned about his character and nature through their adversity in ways that they could not have known. And that in itself is a great point to us about our own journey. When they got into the boat, Jesus has said, we're, we're going to the other side. They come through the storm, and when we join them again today, they have reached the other side as Jesus promised. When they reach the other side, they have reached this Gentile world. They have reached uh, what would open up to ten different cities filled with people who needed Jesus. But the first man they encounter is going to kind of set a type for us for what we should expect. I want to read this passage, and I want the description to set deep with us. As you read how troubled this person was, I want you to keep in mind that it's also a mom's boy. There's a father who every day lived with the anguish of what his son is going through. James Dobson has made a statement, and it's true, and it is that parents are only as happy as their saddest child. So what was life like every day for the mom and dad of this young man that we're going to read about in Mark 5? It's going to be very descriptive and, I think, challenging. So let's take in every word, because we're not just reading any book when we open up the Bible. We're reading the very Word of God. I'm honored and I've been entrusted to share this word with you. I want to be careful with it. And I just call you to an attentiveness to this passage. Let's speak to your heart today. In Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting, cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. Why? Because there are many of us inside the man. Then the evil spirits begged him, and again and again, not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. 
The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. The crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed, perfectly sane, but they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. They had, at that point, they only saw him affecting their livelihood. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, No, you go to your family, and you tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns, that's that, that Decapolis, those ten cities of that region, and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed as, at what he told them. Lord, I pray today that you take this passage and you answer some important questions for us. And may we leave here not just having heard a sermon but a message to us, for us, to be active in the way we think and to become a part of our character, who we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these disciples we saw in Matthew's writings, they get on a boat, and that's like an expedition. It's a picture of Christianity. What is Christianity? It's this adventure in relationship with Jesus. It is not just going to church. It is certainly not boring. It is... It is not even uh, something that is predictable. Matter of fact, there's this adventure with Christ is exciting. There's adversity that's a part of it. But you learn things about Christ even in the adversity that otherwise you wouldn't learn. You're on this expedition. It's an adventure. I'm going to be strong with the use of those descriptions of Christianity. I'm going to contend that Christianity is not just some religion, and Christianity is not just some tradition, but Christianity is a relationship with Christ. And in a relationship with Christ, you are following Him, and there is a thrill to this, and at the same time, there is a challenge because it's a real world. So I, I contend that it's adventurous. It's an expedition. And when they get to the other side... They meet a guy who has serious issues. I mean, we just read it. And in this expedition, they become missional. And it's obvious that they are there to participate in helping people who can't help themselves. In helping people come out of a lifestyle described as dominion and darkness, addiction, twistedness, brokenness humiliation, pain, and to come out of that into a new life, defined by the grace of God, being led by Jesus as the Lord of one's life into the purpose that God has. So we're on this expedition to make a difference. Rick Warren has written a book, you're aware of it, it's called The Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren is a pastor in California and God put this idea in his heart some years ago to write this book. And it, it's become a, a bestseller, not just of the Christian circle, but of all circles. Anytime a book sells 30 million copies, it's, it's one of the all-time greats. It'll be archived as one of those kind of books throughout history. 
And he starts this book called The Purpose Driven Life asking the most basic question. It's the question that everybody asks. Why am I here? No matter your frame of reference, the way you were raised, these determining factors of life, you get to a point and you ask, so why am I here? It's a good question. And I think it's not only a good question for, for us to ask personally, but here's the next question. Why are we here? If you call this your church, and what is it to be a church? What is this about? Is it about attendance or Is there a sense of purpose that we should have as a a group of people that believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior and the leader and the Lord of life? So think this passage that we've just read will give a a lead to answering both questions, the personal level and, and the church level. If we don't get an answer on this, and we're not clear on this, we will easily become a crowd of people. And we'll just collect a crowd, but we never form as, as a congregation. A congregation is different than a crowd. A congregation, they're, they're uniting together in the family of God. That At salvation, we become brothers and sisters. There's, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, your, your ethnicity, or your gender. The, the power of the cross, it, it breaks down all of the gaps. And... We become brothers and sisters in Christ, but we don't just form a holy huddle on Sunday and forget that the game is played between Sundays out there in a real world. And church will become inauthentic and glazed over with religious activity and tradition if we separate it from what happens after we leave here. So this, this passage is going to really challenge us. I want you to see that as Jesus' church gets in that boat, his followers, the first thing that happens when they get to the other side is the encounter with a man who can't help himself. Let's talk about the man. It's going to come on the screen. First of all, he is conquered by the devil. It says there's a legion of demons in him. Why the word legion? Because in the Roman culture, Everybody listening would understand that word. Everybody reading would understand that when the Roman legion occupied territory, they had complete control. They had complete domination. And so this man, recognizing there are a legion of demons in him, what we are learning is that he is hopelessly conquered. He cannot help himself. So when we do battle, the word battle here that's used even by Paul's writings, it's a spiritual battle. That we're up against principalities or spirits of darkness that are at work, that speak lies to people's minds, that get them in such deception and a lack of clarity that they, they harm themselves. They get into relationships that are harmful. They get into patterns that are devastating. So we are in a battle for the soul of this community. And it is a battle that has its confrontation against Satan himself. Okay, this man is dead. Why do I say he's dead? Because he lived in a cemetery. Verses 2 and 3 talk about how he was in this place of burial caves. He's dead. The Bible says that before salvation, we are dead in our sins. Please 
hear that description. We are not weak in our sins. We are dead in our sins. I know of this professor of preaching. He's a fabulous teacher. And at the beginning of a semester, as his students fill the room, and they're in the class called homiletics, where you learn how to, how to build and present a sermon. He goes through the importance of every aspect, every element. The care you give in handling Scripture. Making sure that you're accurate with its context and its, its real message. And then you work hard to apply that to present-day reality so that the Holy Spirit is coming through this Word written 2,000 years ago, but powerfully placing it in our lives as relevant as a newspaper on any given day. But yet it impacts as the Word of God and begins to alter the way we think and the way we live. So in teaching, preaching, all of these different factors are involved. You're getting the message from the Word, and then you're going to build the way you introduce that because that's the hook. You've got to have a strong introduction, but you don't build your introduction until you've built the whole sermon even to its conclusion because I can't introduce you if I don't know you. So you get to know the word and then you, you figure out the best way to introduce that word to capture attention so you can lead people through the truth of God. All of these elements of, of preaching a message in a way that can make a difference. So he talks about uh, the importance of being smooth and, and well-placed illustrations and humor but not too much, and making sure that always the centerpiece of the message is the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that makes the difference. So they then come to the day where their assignment was to build a sermon, and they have to preach it in front of their peers. And the professor will do an evaluation. However, on that day, when they arrive on campus, they are told to get on this bus, and they are taken to a cemetery. There they meet their professor. They have a pulpit in front of all these headstones. And the professor says, now, preach your sermon. They're obviously like, you know, come on. He's saying, no, preach it. Don't skim over it. Don't let this atmosphere make you, this, you, you were to pray and build a message. Now preach the message, every verse, every illustration, Intro to conclusion, preach your sermon. After they preached, he would do the evaluation of the accuracy in which they handled the, the passage of Scripture, how they connected it to present-day life, the way they moved and not just kind of grinded the gears of, as they moved from one point to the other, but kind of a series of movements through his sermon because Jesus never used points. He, in his conversations, they're incredible. He just had a series of moves through a talk with people. But then he said, now look, the reason I brought you to the cemetery is this. How smooth you are will never change somebody's life. Your eloquence, your creativity, and even the accuracy with which you handle Scripture will not raise the dead. I have told you to put importance on all of those elements because they are important, but... I brought you here to remind you that if you don't go to the pulpit reliant on God, then you are just simply dishing out information. The power that causes a word to become a resurrection word to a cold, dead 
sinful heart is the power of Christ. And if you will allow His voice to be the voice, yet He's using your heart. And, and, and you've heard in the Spirit words formed up and came through your, the, the syntaxes of your brain and started firing and down into your heart. A word caught fire and then you stand at a pulpit and you speak that word and these these somehow these sound waves travel through the air into those appendages on the side of your head called ears and they reach your brain and then your brain starts connecting the dots of that principle and it makes its way to your heart in Holy Spirit conviction until you say Jesus save me that's preaching well the point only Christ can raise the dead. And the point is to be reliant on God, not just eloquent in human talent. Because this man is teaching us what we're dealing with. He's dead. And only the power of Jesus can raise the dead. He says to his students, and I love it, he says, now let me give you the Greek meaning of the word dead. Is dead in the Greek means dead. <laughs> this man is not only conquered by the devil and dead, he is dangerous. And notice society can't fix him. What does society do when they can't fix people? They move into damage control. And what they've done with this guy is just moved into damage control. So they're you see where they, they, they moved him. Occasionally they try to chain him. They try to shackle him. Uh, so what we're seeing here is man can't fix him. Man's just trying to do some damage control. We learn from this passage that he's without peace. It says there's no rest for him day or night. Blaise Pascal says there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. And man tries to fill it with all the created but it can only be filled with the Creator. You've seen one story dominating the news over the last couple of days, the story of Amy Winehouse. This superstar who at age 27 has been found dead in her apartment. The backstory of her life is one of drug addiction and often going into rehab. As a matter of fact, just two months ago she had come out of rehab known for her drug use and that kind of brokenness it's been interesting as I've listened to people try and talk about her those who knew her and one person talking about her said she just she, she had no peace in her life this guy had no peace day and night day and night he was tormented you remember the name Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin or Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain three people who also died when they were 27 people familiar to society, people with some notoriety because of their, their talent, and, and yet life snuffed out because they lost control. They were trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum with the created rather than the creator. Maybe there's someone in this room, and as you have watched Amy's story, it's reminded you of maybe a part of your own story. And there's something at work in you that leaves you without peace. And, and what happens is like this guy, you move into self-destruction. He was in pain. It says he would, 
be found screaming. And then he was self-destructive. He would cut himself. He was making choices that just deepened the problems. You see, Satan, he brings wounds. But Jesus comes to bind wounds. This guy is lonely. He's alienated from society. He has no dignity. Do you see what Satan and the fall of man has done to the world? We're after answering the question, why are we here? We are here to experience the power of Christ and to join in fellowship with him and to be on mission with him. And even in the adversity of life, we discover more things about him. And then we make extractions of those who, like this man, can't help themselves. And society can't help them. And the scientists can't help them. They need, they need a savior. And how else will that connection happen unless we, like those disciples, join on mission with Christ and we go to those who are in this darkness with a word or words out of our story, the very grace that resurrected us from spiritual death. Interesting, when Jesus steps foot on the shore, says the man runs to him, and the man bows down. Jesus is about to do some amazing things. This, this man bows, he confesses, and it's interesting, the demons in him start talking, and they say to Jesus, have you come to torment us? They even say, don't torture us, or they, they, don't, they say, don't send us to a distant place, and one version says, are you going to torment us before our time? Now, I want you to know what he's talking about there. Because that has significance. What we're learning when these, when the devil himself is saying to Jesus, have you come to torment me before my time? It's letting us know how aware the devil is of truth. How aware the devil is of scripture. I want to tell you, the devil knows his theology. And, and this proves it and it makes sense because the devil is the greatest deceiver. And the only way you can be the greatest deceiver is if you are well-versed in truth because you can't lead somebody away from that which you don't know. And the only way Satan can deceive a mind from seeing and accepting truth is if he understands that truth so thoroughly that then he can strategize to deceive people away from that truth. I want you to know that what Satan is saying is that he knows his future. Have you come to torment me before my time? You see, Satan knows that Christ is the Savior who will be the Redeemer, who will make sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. And when he dies and rises again in that process, he will disarm Satan. He will disarm Satan, and then Jesus will begin to regenerate people out of a domain of darkness and reconcile them to God, put them in the righteousness of God, and we will move in the purposes of God, knowing the fulfillment and the satisfaction of this relationship with Jesus. We will have a message and a ministry and a mission on this side, and then one day we're going to heaven, and the event that makes that transition is called the rapture, and Satan knows all about that event where Jesus comes, and I want to tell you, it's the next event on God's calendar. 
Jesus Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. And he's going to rapture us, and then there will be a seven-year tribulation. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, and Satan knows all of this, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. At that thousand-year reign, Satan will be bound by Christ himself, and at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So here, Satan says, have you come to torment me before my time? Satan knows the end of the book. And if the church gets on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to extract people from darkness so that when the rapture happens, there is a redeemed group of people out of every nation and tongue that will go and gather around the throne of God to declare His glory throughout the ages of all eternity. That is why we are here. That's why we're here. I hope it stirs your heart. This man depicts what Satan has done to humanity. But notice, Jesus shows up and the demons bow. And the man, it says, is seated, clothed, and put in his right mind. Notice how how fast it happens. I was, I was gripped by that again as I read through this passage. It was quick, wasn't it? I, I fully embraced discipleship. I fully embraced nurturing freedom. I fully embraced learning how to, to keep the principles of spiritual growth in our life so that we move from what Paul said, glory to glory, from, from, from being a baby in Christ to an adolescent to to a teenager in Christ. You know, we go through the spiritual growth, season to season, glory to glory. I I totally believe in that. But if we aren't careful in this present culture, we will present the cross for your salvation, but not for your freedom, that you're going to have to find some type of rehabilitation. I'm not against rehabilitation. I am not against going into a place where you can completely... Use it as a part of God's help to renew your mind. I'm there. But at the same time, we must not ever give up on the message that the cross is a one-stop transformational power of grace. It can redeem. It can renew. It can rehabilitate. It can restore. And it can reconcile. That's why the very essence and the aegis of Christianity is not our code and not our denomination and not our location. It has been and always will be the cross of Jesus Christ. Though millions have come, there is still room for one. There is room at the cross for you. And when you come and experience the power of the cross, you are seated in Christ. That means your sins are forgiven. You are clothed. That means you are made righteousness in Christ and reconciled to God and reestablished in community. And you are put in your right mind. You're no longer crazy. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Hallelujah. Jesus does some things here. And I want you to see them. Let me, let, me, let me say it like this. When Jesus arrived on the other side, everything was upside down. What do I mean? Satan was in control. 
a man is being destroyed and no one can do anything about it. When Jesus shows up, in seconds, the demons are gone, the guy is changed and becomes a member of society and goes on mission for the very cause of God and grace that has resurrected him. So, let's put that into a statement. Jesus frees him and Jesus fixes him. Jesus does for him what no one else can do. What the sciences couldn't do, what people couldn't do, Jesus does, and he does it in a matter of seconds. We must always lift the power of Jesus as the hope for all mankind. So why am I here? I am here to experience this grace in my own life. So that my sins can be forgiven and life could be made new and hope could fill my heart for all eternity and I could be on mission with my one and only life. And I discovered that that mission is going to incorporate the way God wired me up, my personality, my skill set, my talents. And then as I move in education that is aligned with those, with those talents and skill set, then, then I move in that, that field of expertise and God uses me how that places me in a in a sphere of influence with people who may never come through the doors of a church who have no interest in church Christian radio Christian television or Christian websites the only way that they will have any exposure to the power that can really fill the God-shaped vacuum is you. And that's why you are part of this deal. That's The disciples were with Jesus and they're learning that the Great Commission is you're going to a world without God. But I'm the Redeemer and I'm going to show you what my redemptive power can do in a man who can't help himself. And then I want to show you a picture of a man after redemption, seated, clothed. And in his right mind. I tell you, this, may, you, this is why we call the gospel good news. This is why we have an urgency and an intentionality to get this message, this message, to the community and to the world. So, this man is changed. Then Jesus is about to leave. He goes to the boat, and when he gets to the boat, the man that he's changed is in the boat saying, let's go. Because the person who's made the difference in your life, no one else could make that difference, and you've finally been changed. You're, you want to go. And Jesus says, you can't go. Here's what you do. You go home, and you tell everybody exactly what's happened. And when you share your story, make sure they know who did it and how he did it. Now notice, it's an important word for us as followers of Christ. This new convert realizes he is now in submission to his Savior. He's not just been converted from his sin. Now he's letting Jesus be the Lord of his life and direct his path. He wanted to go with Jesus. 
That Jesus says, no, I have another plan for you. And so the guy submitted to that plan. Because when you get converted, it's not just to have sins forgiven, to set up a fire insurance in our mind that I'm going to heaven when I die. It is to then submit to the one who saved us as the Lord of life, of every day of life, of every decision of life. And if he says go in a certain direction, that is the direction I'm going because I'm in submission to him. That's life after redemption. This, this business of somebody getting saved and then still living on their own agenda, I'm telling you, they didn't stop by the cross. They may have been moved out of the pain of their circumstance and even the grief of the choices they've made. They may have even cried tears because they're sorry for what they have done. But when a person encounters the Christ of Calvary, the Christ of Scripture, and they're literally overwhelmed with the kind of grace that changed this man, then they say, what do you want me to do? It's not their agenda, it's his agenda. Lordship. Lordship. Now, i got to land this plane. Listen fast, I'm going to talk fast. This guy is told, you go home. He's saying, bloom where you're planted. Tell everyone who will listen. And I want you to... Catch this important part. He says, don't you go give them a philosophy of Christianity. He's in a Roman culture. They they understood Caesar to be God. They had a very strict code of, of religious adherence to the God of Rome. He didn't say go debate with Rome and go take the tenets of Christian faith and put them up against the tenets of Roman culture. He didn't didn't say go give a philosophy. He said you go and tell your story. Because people know what you've been. And when they see you're no longer what you've been, they're going to want to know who and how. And you say Jesus and by his power. If they say, well, explain creation to me. If they explain what's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism, you say, you know what? I'm not even sure I know. Here's what I know. I couldn't help myself. The scientists couldn't help me. I was as broken as you can imagine. I had great parents who loved me, and yet I couldn't live up to expectations. I was a a dead man walking. In pain day and night. No rest, no peace. Lonely. But Jesus. Because of his great love. While I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Made me alive. And by grace. I'm saved. The same Jesus. The Jesus of scripture. The Jesus of the Bible. Who saved me can save you. Pastor Chance has recently returned with one of our missions teams from Jamaica. They went over there and they did uh, a project for a church that has a church in a school. It's a church building combination. Pretty desperate situation. Let me show you a picture of it. Pretty dilapidated. You see kind of a retaining wall there. Then there's all kind of rocks in the lawn that they picked up by hand and took away. They had a truckload of dirt brought in because they built a garden so that these people can grow produce. They 
had a truckload of sand come in and they built play areas for the kids, but their wheelbarrows, they quickly broke, and so they're moving all of this dirt by hand. It's hot and raining most every day. They worked on the actual buildings, and I want you to sh- I want to show you. This is going to amaze you. You, you. Really capture that. Now go to what it looked like when they were finished. Praise the Lord. That's amazing. That's people that got up every day. And all of the resources for the supplies funded by GL 2011 that you gave out of your generous heart. And they're over there working hard every day. And then on the evening they do ministry. And one evening they go out on the streets of Jamaica. And, and they start ministry in that fashion. And there's a crowd of people gathered. And three of our teenagers tell their story. They did not give this, this philosophy of Christianity. They just told their story. And after they told their story, many of those Jamaicans came out of that crowd and asked Jesus to become their personal Savior because of what they heard of those teenagers' stories. So what we're capturing here is, why do we exist to be on an expedition, to experience His grace and then get on the adventure of Christianity? That season of their journey took them on expedition to Jamaica And they did work for God, created a conversation, told their story, and now there's been some extractions. Some people have come out of sin and are now in the family of God. And when the rapture happens and we get to heaven, we get to worship with those people who got saved while our people were there. That's why we are here. I'd love for us to stay here. I'm like really energized. I've had no five-hour energy, and I felt like I've had like a huge bottle. I'm just fired up and pumped up and just want to keep talking and worshiping with you. Wish we could stay here forever. And you're like, yeah, you do, but we don't shut it down, land the plane. I know some of you are saying, man, we finished a long time ago. And I understand that. I'd love to, but you know what's really important is not that we stay here. What's really important is that we go and tell our story. Bloom where you're planted, your neighbors, your coworkers, and you don't have to have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed of all the facts, of all the doctrines. All you have to do is tell your story. Let's pray.